Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as S. George at R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at Matt Swartz 723 We have a QB1. Yeah, we sure do. Like a decisive QB1. Like, I think... J.J. McCarthy could not have ended this quarterback battle more expeditiously if he tried. Yeah, I mean, we were all talking about what are we going to know by Iowa just because the first few tomato cans really aren't going to be that indicative of much of anything. So both quarterbacks are going to just, you know, run wild and it's going to be a decision that comes down to week three, week or sorry, week four, week five. And that didn't happen. (laughs) No, that was decidedly not the case. So we are, I mean, there's a lot to talk about last week. There's a lot of uh, grave dancing to be done also, which I am not above doing, but I think we'll save that for the end of the episode and we will give the people what they want, which is the quarterback discussion. J.J. McCarthy absolutely nailed this. I mean, he goes 11 for 12, I think 227 yards and three touchdowns. 229. 229, all right. A QBR of 99.2 and an actual passer rating of 353, which would be be really impressive if you were able to do that for a full season. Yeah, that's Heisman (laughs) Trophy numbers. Uh, Yeah, that's about twice as high as anybody's ever finished, so that would definitely be Heisman Trophy numbers. He was flawless. I mean, it felt to me, and that's not even really me talking. That was Jim Harbaugh talking. I mean, I think the quote he gave was that it was near flawless performance by McCarthy. And to me, it felt like, honestly, they were just like, yo, we're going to give this guy a checklist of throws and we're just going to see if we can make them. And I was really, really curious to see what he was able to do with his arm. I think we all know what he can do with his feet. And I was very hopeful that this game wouldn't entail a bunch of just J.J. pulling and outrunning Hawaii dudes because I know you can do that already. I don't need to see that from you. What I need to see is what your decision-making looks like in the passing game, where you can put the ball, all that kind of stuff. And he delivered. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I had the same question you had about, are we just going to see J.J. running circles around Hawaii defenders, which is fine and entertaining, but also doesn't really tell us that much more than what we already knew about JJ. So yeah, I really wanted to see, you know, can he be accurate like Cade? Can he make good decisions, not, you know, have any catastrophic turnovers, terrible INTs? Um, You know, can he just kind of generally be in control and keep the offense moving? And we definitely saw all of that. I mean, the thing that I was, I think, most kind of excited slash impressed by was in the passing game, we saw him do just about everything you could want to see him do. You saw him hit two perfect deep shots, basically in stride, right? The first one to Roman Wilson on his first pass of the game. And then the uh, the deep post to Cornelius Johnson over the safety who was cheating up. So you saw him taking advantage of that stuff. You saw him hitting throws kind of on the mid-levels. You saw a a Ronnie Bell um, kind of dig route where he sat down underneath, kind of in between the linebackers for a first down. Um, You saw him hit Ronnie Bell on an RPO for a touchdown. You saw him rolling out to his left and hitting Eric All on the flat with Eric All running the same direction as him, which is not an easy throw. And he just made it look so easy, just flicked it out to him. Eric All catches it, turns up field, gets the first down. It was all of that that, again, just every type of throw, every level, all of them were on time, accurate, 
it was really impressive in a variety of ways. And again, ways beyond what we already knew JJ could do, which is just outrun people. Definitely. And then, I mean, you commented on in real time when we were in the stadium, the play where he hit Donovan Edwards, because you saw Donovan Edwards kind of motion out and you were like, oh, he's about to be one on one with the linebacker. And you recognized it right away. And so did JJ. And that's where the ball went. Like, I mean, and the same on the first play of the game. I wanted, (laughs) listen, if JJ can't recognize what's going on better than you, we have a problem. (laughs) And so that felt like a bar for me that I was like, oh, Matt saw this. So JJ should probably also see it. And he did. And that felt good. Well, and on his first pass, the Roman Wilson touchdown, I called that out to you right at the snap as the safety you could tell was not backing up. And you've got Roman Wilson one-on-one with a Hawaii safety or corner. I'm not sure what his natural position is, but it doesn't matter because I know Roman Wilson's faster than that guy. And as soon as I saw that matchup, like at the snap, I said, Roman Wilson, Roman Wilson, and he saw it too. So I think with what we have had concerns about with Cade, where especially in week one, it seemed like all he wanted to do was check down and get the ball out as fast as possible to whoever was kind of closest to him. That was definitely not the case with J.J. When there were deep shots there to be taken, he hit them. Whether it was Roman Wilson, Cornelius Johnson, Donovan Edwards in the one-on-one matchup, he saw what was there for the taking down the field, and he took it. But he also didn't force it. When he had his second completion, actually, I thought there was an opportunity to go deep to Cornelius Johnson where it looked like he had beaten a corner, but there was also a safety over the top. And I saw that kind of opening up, and I thought, he might take another shot here. And instead, he hit Ronnie Bell going across the middle wide open, and Ronnie Bell turned it upfield for like, 18 yards or whatever it was and that was another one where it was like okay he's seeing what's there deep but if it's not definitely there he's taking the safe stuff like he really seemed to be seeing the field well yeah I am curious because that stuff all strikes me as and you know I won't purport to be an expert here but that stuff all strikes me as first or second read stuff and I would be curious about what it looks like when you play like not a horrific fucking defense and they're taking away those reads more cleanly, like like Iowa. I mean, we I have a lot of shit to talk about Iowa later in this episode, but their mm-hmm. defense isn't something that I can talk shit about. I mean, that Iowa defense is scary, and it's always scary. And so I think the only real unresolved question is, like, what happens when your first couple of reads aren't there? And I don't think we're going to see that even before Iowa City, really, because Maryland's offense can put up points. Their defense is kind of trash. And Connecticut is just the same team we played last week, also trash. Yeah, there's probably not that much more we're going to learn before Iowa. Um, And and that's fair. I think we have not really seen him have to go all the way through his progressions that much. Uh, He only threw 12 passes and I think four in the opener. So still not a huge sample size in that regard and certainly not against a real defense. But what we did see, I think, was, was very promising. I mean, the Roddy Bell throw I mentioned, I don't think that was his first read. He was looking down the field to Cornelius Johnson and saw with the corner. Right, but it might have been the second read. It probably was. I mean, that's right. That's 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 kind of what I mean. Like, okay, first and second. Like now, also, frankly, most college offenses you don't really get to a third read because a lot of them it's if first read isn't there, take off. And if JJ is to the point where he can already get past his first read to his second, and he has the legs to take off when things fall apart. It's probably all you need, honestly, for, for him to be point. pretty successful. It's a very fair point. Um, knock on wood that what happens against Iowa, Michigan State, Penn State, that doesn't end up being, you know, <laughs> it could be a very wrong take, but I guess we'll see. At the very least, I know Iowa's defense is scary, 
but you can probably win that game with a single touchdown. So I'm I'm in my talking shit about Kirk Ferentz era. No, I have been in this era, okay? I have been on the no Kinnick Juju team for a long time, and I'm sticking to it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm talking shit. We're going to come back to this. I'm talking shit. But as all of I think that's the, really the only thing that I like need to know about JJ that I don't already know. That's probably it. I mean, honestly, I, that's that's it. Right. It's going to be when the rubber hits the road. Can he, you know, stand in there with pressure from real Big Ten defensive ends getting around the edge or guys coming up the gut? Can he stand in there and make throws and make reads and not, you know, not throw it to a linebacker, not, you know, miss somebody coming across into a, a slant what or is into a the post? First pair of defensive ends that we play or even one that's like good I mean even Penn State's ends appear to have kind of fallen off a cliff and Penn State usually has pretty good ends and they seem kind of stinky right now and we don't have Wisconsin yeah Iowa's got some decent players Penn State's got some decent players Michigan Michigan State State has a couple guys they brought in Jacoby Winman looks really dangerous off the edge a transfer from UNLV Um, so we're gonna see some guys are they as good as what we saw like last year from Penn State? No, I don't think so. I'm not sure we're going to see anybody at that level all year unless, you know, maybe Zach Harrison or somebody at Ohio State kind of takes that step, which is... We got a long time between now right, and then, exactly. too. Right. So that'll be, uh, I guess, an opportunity for him to kind of progress, hopefully, as the year goes forward and get some experience doing that without facing anybody early on who's going to be, uh, you know, all up in his business <laughs> throughout the game. Yeah, the one thing that he did that I thought was a little questionable, and this throw is going to be dissected to death because it is his only incompletion, was that Ronnie Bell drop. The reason why is because that throw, I probably wouldn't, I say I probably wouldn't make that throw as if I could recognize that that throw was even fucking there. Like, okay, but if I had JJ's knowledge and ability, I'm not sure that I would make that throw, which is to say... I mean, the linebacker's like right there. And he threw it a little bit behind Ronnie Bell, I think because he knows the linebacker is right there. Yeah, he definitely saw that linebacker. But if you don't put that ball in exactly the right place, and especially in that field position, I mean, that's a pick six maybe. And I didn't love that from a decision-making perspective, but I will say to JJ's credit, he put the ball in just about the only place you could put it without it being an interception, but it, it could have been tipped. Like it kind of had tipped ball energy too. I, I don't know. I didn't love that. I also didn't think he was going to pick up the first down on it anyway. Like it was short of the sticks because I think it was third and 10. Yeah, but I think if, I mean, the ball went past the linebacker, right? So Ronnie Bell was behind the linebacker. I think if he makes that catch, he's got the, the room to run and probably get 15 yards on that. So I, I think they would have gotten the first down. Um, and I kind of felt the same way live that, oh boy, that <laughs> that throw looked pretty dangerous. Seeing it on replay and knowing JJ's arm strength, I think he felt pretty confident to like, I can throw this ball past him and still have it catchable for Ronnie Bell. And he did. I mean, to his credit, hit Ronnie Bell in the hands. Like you said, it was really the only place he could have thrown it and had it be catchable. And it probably should have been. 
Um, but yeah, that's something we'll just have to keep an eye out for. I think as you start playing again, those Iowa linebackers, uh, <laughs> some of those defenses where right we don't have Wisconsin on the schedule for this year, but like Wisconsin linebackers don't fuck that kind of shit up. Yeah, there's gonna be a little bit less margin for error, so he'll have to be a little bit cautious on stuff like that. But I mean, he he did get the ball there, and right, I mean, he pulled it off. Right. That doesn't make it a good decision, but he did pull it off. I will say, not necessarily, but. Uh, Hey, it's a results-based business, I guess. (laughs) That it is. That it is. I think even more alarming, or like, I guess it's not alarming. It was a little alarming, but even more decisive than JJ's performance, I think, was Cade's, frankly. I mean, I don't think I'm alone in being struck by just how shook Cade looks all the time. This experiment, this quarterback competition was always going to be a little bit flawed. Okay, fine, Colorado State and Hawaii are both bad, but Colorado State is a little better than Hawaii, and that's who you gave Cade the start against. And Very marginally. I mean, we're talking listen, of a team that's ranked 114th versus 128th. You can't totally in control for the sure, differences yeah. between the two teams, even if they're kind of both crappy. So there was always going to be like some room for argument i think that like oh you gave Cade the harder task even if it's just marginally if the performance was even remotely comparable you are going to be having this argument the blessing i think from jim harbaugh's perspective is that it was not comparable i mean jj in whatever limited snaps he had against colorado state moved the ball more effectively than Cade did and then when Cade came in in the hawaii game it was not good. I mean, he didn't get help. The protection wasn't good. You know, there were drops by the receivers as well. But yeah, CJ Stokes had a bad drop on a, a ball out of the flat that you know, Cade man, recognized the pressure I mean, and, and got rid of it. Cade threw a pretty crappy interception. Like, it, he just looks worse than he did last year, I think, by all accounts. And so... Oh, he definitely looks like he's regressed. And I think it's largely... I just think he's this, in his head. Yeah, it's, it's in his head that he is... He just looks like he is kind of forcing it or kind of, I don't know if forcing it is the right word, but every play he's like wound so tight that, you know, anything that happens, he's pulling his chin strap off. He's, he's like so frustrated by the situation that he's in and that he's being so clearly outperformed that I think it's just, it's like snowballing and it's getting worse for him. And, I think that that's is, right. Yeah. The the thing that struck me, the thing that came to mind for me is, I know you guys have heard this before, but when you're watching a basketball game and a team gets down by like, I don't know, 12 or 15, and the announcers give you this cliche where they're like, you don't have to make it up all at once. It's one possession at a time. There are no 15-point shots, right? You just kind of have to chip away at it. I feel like Cade McNamara is trying to take the 15-point shot on every play. I think he feels like on every single snap, he needs to desperately make up ground. And it's only making him play worse. I mean, he just looked so much worse. And the protection issue, I think, is the most interesting one. Because one of the things he was so good at last year was avoiding the negative play. Yep. He had such good like pocket awareness of like, okay, somebody is coming. And even if he isn't like mobile enough to outrun them, he doesn't have McCarthy's mobility. He used to kind of do like 
the Ben Roethlisberger X thing where he would just kind of like yeah. step away from it. He can shuffle around in the pocket and yeah. get himself to a spot like where a he can throw Like a little like, you know, it's not, it's not entirely the same, but he used to do that thing where he could just kind of step away from it, like make a guy miss one lunge, even if he couldn't really like take off. And that has like evaporated as well. I mean, he showed very little ability to do that same thing in the last couple of games. And, you know, Cade's, best asset really was his ability to like keep you on schedule and avoid negative plays and I mean without that ability this is not at all close and I mean I mean the competition is over for now like we said it JJ has to implode like JJ has to absolutely implode to reopen the store right this is not really a competition at this point this is JJ as the starter unless slash until he does something disastrous that necessitates Cade going back in and we said it last week that when JJ came in, even in the same situation that Cade was in in the Hawaii game, right, where he was in mostly... You mean the Colorado State game? You said it last week, right? Well, yeah, I mean, the situation that JJ was in against Colorado State was the same that Cade was in against Hawaii. Oh, I got you. Okay. He was coming in mostly with the second stringers, right? Mostly the backup offensive line. So not a direct in-game apples-to-apples comparison with the starting quarterback in each of those settings. But even when JJ was in the game with mostly the twos against Colorado State, everything was so much easier. And that just... The root canal offense vanishes. Right, and that was just exacerbated against um, against Hawaii, where... I mean, they even... Jim put the first-team offensive line back in for Cade's series, too. Like, they, you know, he didn't, like, hang him out to dry and say, okay, you go play with the twos at at Yeah, the one series in the first half that Cade got, right, was still with the starting O-line. Right. And, yeah, it just has looked so much easier. I mean, 410 total yards, the most yards and a half since Harbaugh's been a coach at Michigan. And, sure, we've, like, it it was Hawaii, but guess what? We played a bunch of other really shitty teams. We've played tomato cans before. And it's not looked like this. (laughs) Right. No, totally. I totally agree. It's not been 20 yards an attempt and a touchdown, like, Every other every other throw basically is what it felt like. Right, and one more thing, kind of in the, you know, I we were Kate apologists. We sat here on this podcast and were Kate apologists to you. At this point, that's not a defensible position to take anymore. And, you know, the one thing I think the single perhaps knock on the way Michigan off Michigan's offense has looked thus far is that the protection has been a little shaky. The pass protection has been a little shaky. In a kind of an unexpected way. I think people thought it would be maybe a little bit better at this stage than it has been so far. That's another point, JJ, for me. Because, you know, if Cade's back there and you know he has no ability to pull or, you know, get away from you, it's it makes it all that much easier for you to just tee off. I also, I have a, a theory that I've told you, which is that I don't think it's a coincidence that Cade has gotten significantly more pressure when he's in the game than when JJ is. And it's not just because J.J. can take off and run from the pocket. It's that because Michigan has used J.J. so much in like the zone read game as a runner, you can't just be back there teeing off thinking, I've got to get to seven yards at the back of the quarterback's drop to get to the quarterback. Like As a defensive end, you've got to make sure you're not getting red and running yourself out of the play before you do anything because that's a big part of Michigan's offense with J.J. in the game. And so just having that extra half second of guys having to be really sure that J.J. is actually a passer and not a runner gives them some extra time. And I think we've seen that really consistently, that teams are approaching 
pass rush differently with Kate in the game than with JJ in the game. So I, I agree that it's a point in JJ's favor for sure. I just think it goes in, in more than one way. We haven't really seen JJ have to take off a whole lot. Um, we did see him on, I think it was the last touchdown of the first half, right, where he kind of stood back there, started to get a little bit of pressure around the edge, stepped up into the pocket, rolled a little to the left to get into kind of a, an opening away from where the interior of the D-line was. And then he throws an absolute laser across his body to the corner of the end zone where Cornelius Johnson is breaking free. And first of all, that's a throw Cade can't make. And it's not even a knock on Cade. Cade. Can do. There's nothing he can do. There's probably less than 50 guys in the world who can throw a ball like that. And most of them are in the NFL right now. So that is the kind of throw where all you can do is look at it and go like, wow, that's another level that most people just can't ever touch. But also it was another good indicator I thought of what JJ's mobility can give you. You're right, we did see some of that from Cade last year, but not as much this year so far. And, man, when you start tacking stuff like that onto just how clean and composed he looked in every other aspect, and on top of that, what I think is the strongest selling point for JJ, which is what he does in the run game. I mean, we've seen that in really significant ways in both of the first two games where zone read situations in particular, the defense, especially the, the linebacker level or the defensive end on the JJ side, they're paying so much attention to him that you can just see how much more space there is for whoever's got the ball. It is a stark difference. And if you're talking about an extra yard or two per carry over the course of the season, I mean, that is a massive advantage. So, you know, <laughs> put all that together. And again, this is not a competition at this point. It's it's JJ's job, and we're going to see how far he can take us. Totally. I do feel bad for Cade, though. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to watch when somebody was so good last year and is such a, like, generally well-liked leader on the team and he's struggling so badly and you just kind of know that, like, it kind of looks like his time as a I mean, a, I feel like I'm watching him walk player. the plank. <laughs> right. You know, like, it's just, it's not fun. And not to mention the people who I was physically ready to fight inside of Michigan Stadium who were booing him. Yeah, we got to, uh, people got to knock that shit off. I mean, not only, like... I've seen a it's lot of people saying... It's fucking stupid. Right. Do you boo CJ Stokes when he goes into the game because he's not Blake Corum? Right. I, like, or, or Gemin Green because you want Will Johnson energy. to be the starter? Yeah, keep that same energy for your fucking quarterbacks. I, right. I can't it's, believe It's this. really frustrating and embarrassing, and it, it was especially bad in our section. I mean, there were some people arguing with us about it on Twitter that... Oh, people aren't really booing. And it's like, no, but we're here. People are definitely booing and yelling like, put JJ back in. This is not subtle about what's going on here. And yeah, I mean, and even if even if you want to take the like optimistic approach to this or the like, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, they're just booing because they want to see more JJ. That's indistinguishable to Cade from where he's standing. You Correct. know what I mean? Unless like, you're down on the field yelling at Jim Harbaugh, Cade McNamara can't tell the difference when he's right. out on the field. So shut the fuck up. Like, I, and not, I'm not inclined to give people the benefit of the doubt. I've spent the better part of the last like six years finding out how just fucking awful people can be <laughs> the overwhelming majority of the time. So like, I'm not inclined to give people the benefit of the doubt to begin with but it was very obvious I mean like Cade sucks put JJ back in is like exactly what I was hearing in my section it's it's inexcusable it's nonsense that's our player on our roster we reserve booing for Buckeye Spartans and criminals 
End of discussion. Oftentimes those are the same. They're concentric circles. Like, (laughs) get the fuck out of here with that. I was furious. I had, like, steam coming out of my ears. I was so mad. No, and I was just going to say that we've seen a lot of people basically making the the case, like, don't bouquet. Look what he did last year. Like, he led us to a Big Ten title. He was a fan favorite. And all of that is true. I'm not disputing any of that. But also, he is a player on this team. You know, like you said, you're not booing C.J. Stokes when he goes out there because he's not Blake Corum. We're not booing Jemin Green when he's out there because we want it to be Will Johnson time. He is a player on this current team and might end up being an important player on this team. There is no excuse ever to be booing your own players. And, yeah, I'm not going to have any of that. So next uh, <laughs> next time we're in the stadium, if I'm hearing that, there's going to be uh, there's going to be yelling going on. I said I was going to throw hands. That's probably not true, but I will certainly cuss people out. Yeah, I don't You've heard get like out, 10 F-bombs I'll, I'll tell on you this podcast it. already, so <laughs> you know I'll cuss people out. Right. I'm not above it. I also think that just in general, like, you can tell that Michigan has not had a real quarterback competition in 15-plus years. I mean, it's been a long time. You're telling time. me Spate versus O'Corn wasn't biblical? No, that doesn't count. I'm talking about like an actual competition between good quarterbacks. I said this either a week ago or on the season preview episode, I can't remember for sure, but this is a problem that like major power programs have now where you bring in, you know, a four star or a five star, a guy who's a pretty good starter. And then you have another guy behind him who's a five star and you have to figure that out. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily end right. happily Nick for Saban everyone. had to do this. Right. Dabble Jalen Hurts had to do didn't this. finish his career at Alabama. Kelly Bryant didn't finish his career at Clemson. And... I'm in no way advocating for a transfer or anything like that for anybody on the roster. I'm just saying this is a problem that happens. And to have this situation that Michigan is in right now is a pretty damn good thing. I mean, I don't think... It's a testament to the strength of the program. Yeah. And I don't think that, I mean, nobody wanted Cade to implode the way that he has. But if you were to tell me two weeks in, we've got a decisive situation. JJ has been so unbelievably good that... There's been no choice but to name him the starter. And Cade is there as the backup. Like, that's probably best case scenario, I feel like. Correct. I don't think this could have played out any better in reality. I think the worst case scenario was probably a situation where the margin between them was razor thin. And then either this continued to drag out for weeks and weeks and weeks. And we didn't know who was going to be the starter or... You know, it created this kind of like weird cloud over the entire season, I feel like was probably the worst case. But this and even is in that so scenario, decisive. I think that only would have been worst case if both quarterbacks were playing not very well. Like if JJ had struggled and it was like, shit, like we have a couple options, but neither one of them looks very good. That would have been worst case scenario, I think. But at least one guy is playing lights out and it's the guy who has unlimited upside. I mean, <laughs> for sure. I'm going to ask a question that I feel like I already know the answer to because I know you so well, but I've seen it suggested and not just by like fringe people on the internet, like some, someone from, I listened to part of the MGO blog podcast this morning and it was one of their folks. I, David may, I can't remember who it was, mm-hmm. but suggested that Jim Harbaugh knew this was going to happen, that he basically let it play out this way because benching an entrenched starter, the starter who led you to the promised land for the first time in a gazillion years, was going to be 
really, really difficult, if not impossible for him to do. And he needed the boosters, the athletic department, the fans, the world to see what he was seeing and got to basically wash his hands of it. Like my hands are forced. I, I, there's nothing I can do. It's obvious what's going on here. You've all seen it. There's nothing I can do and like make him kind of absolve him of the fact that he doesn't feel like he's doing right by his player, you know, by yeah, paid. I, I don't buy that personally. I just think that like for a couple of reasons, actually, for one, Harbaugh is like weirdly transparent and when he said in camp, it's 50-50, I think one guy is better one day and then the other guy is better the next day. I, I take him at his word with almost all of those things. I think what lends credibility to this theory is the fact that what we have seen from these two guys lately makes it almost impossible to believe that this shit was close in camp. Well, but that's not what we heard from independent observers, though, is the I thing. Know, we, we but heard it all. it's so hard to believe because JJ has been head and shoulders better than Cade. Like, it almost feels like he was blowing smoke up Cade's ass, you know? I mean, I would think that was possible, except that we, you know, we heard from people who were seeing practice that, you know, Cade looks significantly improved. The ball is never hitting the ground. Um, you know, JJ's still making some periodic mistakes and Cade's not making the mistakes. So, you know, even if you were to ignore everything Harbaugh says as coach speak and just listen to the people who are kind of the quote unquote insiders and were there seeing things and would, at least in theory, be able to provide a more objective view everything we heard pointed to this being very even and something that was going to need to go into the season to play out, especially with JJ not having been there in spring and having thrown, you know, we, we charted it and he threw, I think 11 passes last year in like actual competitive situations. Right. Non garbage. There was just not enough data on JJ to really know what was going to happen. I think when the lights came on and you rolled it out there and then Kate has been so much worse. I just, I, I can't imagine that that, gap could have been predicted based on what we were hearing from camp, let alone what Harbaugh was saying. So, yeah, I can't tell how I feel about this theory because part of me feels like Jim Harbaugh. I mean, like he's done this before. He hasn't done it at Michigan, but he did it with Alex Smith and Colin Kaepernick. We all know this, right? Yep. But I do feel like it's a little bit different when you're talking about like paid professionals and not college kids. There is something I feel like that's a little distinguishing and might force you to kind of treat it with kid gloves in a way that you might not otherwise do, especially when the person you are intending to remove gave you the best season you've had in nearly 20 years. So I get it kind of why you would posit this theory. I mean, do I I think it's really like, I don't, I can't reconcile all parts of it in a way that I think is cohesive. Do I think it's possible that coming out of camp, Harbaugh thought, I kind of think JJ is the guy. Like, sure, I, I think that's entirely possible. But again, without having seen JJ ever play a meaningful portion of a game, I don't think you could actually make that decision with any confidence. I think you had to let it play out and give both guys a chance and say, we got to see these guys against real competition. I mean, we've seen Kate, obviously, but we've got to play them some more and give us a little bit more, like, apples to apples data points to be able to say is JJ actually ready you know not just can he run around and do cool stuff and look good in practice but again when the lights are on and it's actually you got to go out there and run the offense and do it again and do it again and do it again can you do that we had no idea and Harbaugh had no idea nobody had any idea so I do think that it's possible that he thought JJ was in the lead and didn't necessarily want to 
pull the trigger with no information. Right. Lean right into that from the get go. Yeah. I think given that's what the he knew he had theory. in McNamara. Um, I think he, I think it's very possible that Harbaugh had at least a sneaking suspicion of how this would play out when the lights came on, but I didn't think he was yeah. making the decision with no data, but like it, it's just really hard for me to believe that JJ wasn't in the lead by a significant margin in light of what I've seen in week one and week two. And I think that's the part of it where I'm like, nah, man, he knew it was, J- he must've known it was JJ the whole time. Cause JJ has been miles better. I mean, it's yeah, like, but I also don't think that, I mean, everything we heard, not only from camp, but basically everything we saw last year indicated that Cade was a better player than what we've seen from him this year. So I, I don't think that really could have been predicted either that, JJ would be so good and Cade would have been so bad in such a a weird way based on everything that we've seen from him so far. So, yeah, I'm not buying that. I do think it's very possible that he had an intuition that JJ was ready to kind of take that step, but he didn't want to, like you said, pull the trigger (laughs) right from the get-go without actually having seen it on the field. I don't know, but uh, either way, here we are. Yeah, I mean, I don't have that much more to say about the rest of the offense. We talked a little bit about the line and – its issues but other than that I mean everybody did exactly what I expected them to do which was kick ass yeah it was right (laughs) there was not uh not all that much interesting to talk about it was nice to see uh the one situation you mentioned where Donovan Edwards shifted out of the backfield split himself out wide and a Hawaii linebacker went with him kind of a, a very clear man signal and Got to tell you, Donovan Edwards against a linebacker, Hawaii linebacker or not, I'm taking that matchup anytime. And JJ saw it, looked the safety off, and then threw a perfect ball. I'm still ball. traumatized by Saquon Barkley versus safeties, so I'm very glad that we can do that to other oh, people God, now. Oh, it's, God, it's beautiful. I mean, there are not many running backs who can play receiver like Donovan Edwards can. You saw him run that route where he gives the little like stutter step hesitation and then just accelerates past the guy and then goes up and high points the ball at like, the two-yard line. Like, that's... That's good receiver stuff. Somebody replied to me and said that it reminded them of Najee Harris, and I totally agree with that. Yeah. Najee Harris was good at Najee that. Najee Harris was also on that short list of running backs who can be elite receivers. Like the that's, way that he high-pointed real short the list. ball. Yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, so that was really fun. Um, Roman Wilson obviously had a huge game, which was cool being from Hawaii and I guess playing against a, a bunch of his former teammates They did teammates that shit there. on purpose. They oh, absolutely. always do that yeah. shit on purpose. Like I remember distinctly... Uh, Maryland game where they like handed the ball off to Henry Pogey for a touchdown yep. or whatever because they are just trying to get him a well, touchdown yeah, you know a in guy's front got, of his you know, like friends home and family crowd or, or whatever. whatever. Yeah, I think that's fun. That's one of the things I love about this game that sure. they're like you know willing to do that for these like young people. They, they're kids. I mean, like it, I don't know. I love it. I, it makes my heart warm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one other guy I wanted to call out was C.J. Stokes. He, he looks continues good. to look yeah like a viable right now running back option as a true freshman, which doesn't happen all that often. Um, but with the way that they're using Donovan Edwards, especially I think, when we have the running backs we have. Oh, right. Yeah. This is not like a, an out of necessity situation. By right. Any like, he doesn't need to be getting playing time, no, but he no. is. Yeah. I said uh, right after the, um, the Colorado state game that I thought he was giving me kind of Karan Higdon vibes. And I've seen that kind of proliferating across the internet um, seems to be a, a popular take and yeah i mean if we got another cron higdon on our hands in addition to obviously quorum remains kind of the the lead guy um but i was going to say especially with donovan edwards and the way that they like to use him you know split him out wide have him flaring out as as a decoy um having another like true running back option that they can rotate in there 
just uh, again kind of gives them more flexibility this this offense there's a lot of weapons and you started to see what it can be in the first half against Hawaii and it was exciting (laughs) yeah we're into it we can talk a little bit about the defense too do you have more on the offense before we do that one other thing I was going to mention about the offense was you mentioned during the game that you kind of felt like the interior or the offensive line in general I guess was not necessarily playing super great so far in that it seems like the run game has been kind of bottled up not a lot of huge plays not a lot of like necessarily huge creases outside of occasionally you know like the first play of the game we saw Hawaii blow a gap and Blake Crum just goes around the end untouched for 30 yards Um, but I, I don't actually think it's an offensive line issue I think there's been a pretty clear pattern in the first two games where we've gotten a lot of seven and a half to eight guys in the box and teams just like playing one safety over the top of that and if you watch film on Michigan last year that's probably the way to play Michigan put eight in the box bottle it up make it kind of a mess inside do you stack the box and press your corners <laughs> you always stack the box and press your corner that's the only defense that, that's the only that's the only correct defense against any offense no but I mean that would have been the way to defend Michigan last year and with what we saw from Kate against Colorado State that remained the right way to defend this offense because if you're not really going to punish people down the field, pack as many defenders as you can within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage and just make everything difficult and congested. That went away pretty fast when Roman Wilson is running right past a corner up the seam or Cornelius Johnson is running a post past your one safety who can't get over fast enough because you've got Ronnie Bell running a crossing route and Cornelius Johnson going behind that and the one safety can only take one of the two guys. Like, I think the play calling in this game was especially designed to take advantage of that. The same was true, even though it wasn't a deep pass, it served the same effect, the Roman Wilson end around for the touchdown. That was a tendency breaker where they ran split zone action and then had Eric all fake basically his, with split zone, the tight end usually peels around the offensive line and blocks the defensive end on the far side. He started to come around, and then he turns around and goes the other direction to be a lead blocker for Roman Wilson. Those are the kind of things where you're breaking tendency, you're doing things that get you out of the box and get you, oh my God, am I going to say like a speed and space situation here, <laughs> ironically? The speed and space arrives upon the Gaddis departure. Right on time. <laughs> my God. But yeah, no, you saw that that defensive mentality or strategy or whatever you want to call it fall apart very quickly when JJ was willing to throw the ball down the field or when they were willing to, uh, you know, to bring somebody around on like an end around motion, a jet sweep motion and do something that played off their typical run action and said, go ahead and send eight guys at this, but that's not where the ball is going to be. And by the time you realize that you're fucked. (laughs) So seeing more of that, I think, especially with what JJ can do at the run game, which we didn't really even see much of against Hawaii. As you mentioned, he had the one carry for 16 yards. Um, as you start to see more of that baked in, I think you're going to see a lot of the stuff in the run game start to open up and that get a little bit easier when there aren't eight guys in the box because you're not going to be able to play Michigan that way for very long. I really like the sound of that. <laughs> like a lot. Same. All right, now to the defense. I don't have a lot to say. They were good. Hawaii is bad. That's my analysis. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was basically what they should have done against a very, very bad offense. Um, I thought Mike Morris was very good, regularly getting pressure, kind of just torching the Hawaii, whichever Hawaii tackle he was lined up against didn't really even matter. Mozzie Smith was regularly kind of crushing the pocket in the same way we saw against Colorado State. The thing about Mozzie Smith is when he decides 
he's going to move somebody, you are going to move. Like, there is no way around it. And even when they were doubling him... I mean, he's like a boulder-sized man. (laughs) Right. So, this checks out. He's a boulder-sized man who can move in a way that a boulder-sized man should not be able to move. Um, And a couple times you could tell they were trying to double him, and it kind of worked. But also, then you're leaving Mike Morris, Chris Jenkins in one-on-one matchups, and those guys are going to collapse the pocket. So... You saw a lot of the same stuff as what we saw against Colorado State. It didn't necessarily result in as many sacks just because I think Hawaii and Joey Allen, who's a lot more experienced than the Colorado State guy who was making his first ever start, just did a better job in general of getting rid of the ball quickly um, without having disastrous things happen. It just didn't go very far. I mean, it was a lot of little like, you know, two yard outs or, you know, attempts at hitches that were totally covered and were thrown into the turf or just a quick oh, there's a one-on-one matchup on the outside. I'm going to throw a, a fade and see if we get a big play. And DJ Turner and Jemin Green were having none of that. Um, yeah, DJ Turner had the one misstep. He had one missed tackle where they threw a little like five-yard hitch, and he kind of overran it trying to make the tackle, and they got a first down early in the game. And honestly, that was about the only play of note Hawaii had in the entire first half. I mean, good God, they had 37 total yards at halftime, and Michigan had 410. So Brian Ferentz was... is going to start taking notes. <laughs> Christ. 37 whole yards i'm in my shit talking era you're always in your shit talking era yeah it was as dominant on defense as if it was we on lose offense at Kinnick, the oh whole fan base is gonna come for me yeah yeah let's just uh not speak that's that not existence. true actually it's gonna be like 182 people that listen to this podcast <laughs> but like whatever that's enough <laughs> that's enough people to make me deeply unhappy i don't know yeah, I mean, there's not that much interesting to say because there just was nothing there. I thought um, Mike Morris and Mozzie Smith both kind of stood out as guys who were pretty dominant on the line. I Junior thought Rayshon Colson, Benny played really well. Rayshon Benny did play well, and, and Mason Graham as well. Those guys are... I, I know Mason Graham is technically a starter. Really, he's more in a backup role given the way that Michigan is playing most of the time, like uh, situationally on defense with Nickel as really kind of their base. But yeah, both those guys were good. I thought Junior Colson was good again. Jemin Green and DJ Turner, again, gave up basically nothing, even on the handful of deep shots they did try. So it was the ass-kicking that we expected it to be, and I'm not sure there's much more to take away from it other than that, unless you want to get really deep into the game and say, if Michigan's third-string defense had had to play the entire night, it might have been a more interesting competition. (laughs) Only if the first-string offense wasn't allowed to play either. Oh, right, because that offense could have put up 100 if they wanted to. Yeah, I mean... They pulled everybody at halftime when they had 42 points and 410 yards or whatever. Right. So Jim Harbaugh was excited, though. You would have had to put a, put in the whole backup offense and, like, the third <laughs> string defense, and then this one might have... I might have broken a sweat at some point. Yeah, Jim Harbaugh sounded very excited that the... Uh, coming out of halftime, Michigan, quote-unquote, won the second half 17-14. to 14, So... <laughs> He did say that. And they played like 96 players or something yeah, like deeply stupid. So, listen, I like that. I Which mean, impressively was not the record. No, they said it was 106 on the Jansen podcast. Yeah, against Northern Illinois last year, which is a game that definitely happened. I don't remember it. I'm pretty sure we took my parents to it, Matt, but I don't remember. I was just like... I remember Rocky Lombardi scoring a touchdown and like motioning to the crowd, like bring on the, the okay, booze. I That's do the only thing that. that happened in that game. Because he except talked also shit we down 70. like 30, <laughs> right. which honestly is big Sparty energy. Rocky Lombardi, forever a Spartan, legendary Spartan. 
But you can leave Michigan State, but the Michigan <laughs> State can't leave you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Okay, now I do remember that. That's ringing a bell now. I forgot that happened. Yeah, anyway, um, that's about it on the defense, I guess. We could talk a little bit about uh, UConn next week. I mean, 45 seconds tops, like I said last <laughs> week. They're bad. Seconds. Ooh, all right. End of discussion. I'm going into auctioneer voice here. Um, no, I mean, UConn is very bad. They are right on par with Hawaii, two spots ahead of them in SP+, 126th rather than 128th. So it's a terrible team. What's They're, Maryland? Ooh, let's check. I just want to know how quickly the competition is going to ramp up. And also, is Maryland ahead of Iowa or behind Iowa? Well, I was going to say UConn is sub-120th on both offense and defense. So and gross. Michigan is rightfully favored by 47, which has been the average margin of victory in the first two games. So feels about right. It should be very uninteresting in every way other than, I guess, to find out can JJ kind of remain as consistent, accurate, kind of keep doing all the things that we saw in this game that we thought were encouraging. Just the more evidence you see of that, that he can build even against bad teams, just getting comfortable, I think, is going to be big for him as you start to get into those, you know, more totally. interesting Totally. I mean, games. all I'm watching for is whether he can keep doing what he's doing. Right. Um, Maryland, by the way, is 45th. They are 23rd on offense and 73rd on defense. Okay, so and that's they are better. Slightly behind Iowa, which is uh, 39th overall, but 85th on offense and 7th on defense. Jesus so Christ. they are approaching, you know, North Carolina or. Uh, you know, some of these like inverse North Carolina, right? In, inverse North Carolina, but in, in having such a huge split between your offense and your defense. Yeah, that happens. This is so nerdy and very niche, but that happens in law school admissions too, where there will be like people who have like 4.0 GPAs, but like kind of mediocre LSAT scores, or where they have like super high LSAT scores, but they drank too much in college, like me, and had mediocre GPAs. That doesn't sound like a thing that happens. And so... Also, I did not expect that that was where the conversation was going to go. <laughs> I'm full of surprises, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, so uh, Maryland and Iowa are right in the same area. Maryland 45th overall, Iowa 39th overall. So we're going to get a little bit more of a serious test, but... God, with uh, with the way the Big Ten is shaping up, Big Ten West especially, man, we can just, I think, segue from there right into sweet Jesus, the Big Ten West. Do you have anything else to say about UConn? Can you name one player who plays on UConn? I can't. Oh, their quarterback is the guy who was at Penn State last year. Remember when Sean Clifford got hurt against Iowa? I think his name is Daquan Roberson. He okay, came in and was familiar, awful. Yes. Um, he transferred and is at UConn now and is their starting quarterback so I can name one UConn player that's great we love to see it this is a very very well researched and thorough podcast folks (laughs) it's fine this is not going to be a competitive game there's no reason to continue talking about it so like I said let's just talk about the Big Ten West because that's fun Scott Frost R.I.P. Scott Frost Nebraska will be out hitting the competition no longer you're no longer with us, but the remnants of your lineman puking 15 <laughs> times a day will live on forever in our memory. Can we talk about how remarkable it is that his buyout was supposed to drop from $15 million to $7.5 million on October 1st? And Nebraska was doing so poorly that they said, fuck it, we'll pay an extra $7.5 million just to get rid of him now rather than three weeks from now. I just feel like you can't. I feel like they couldn't wait. And the reason why is maybe this is just me, but like if you're going to fire a coach in the middle of the season, you kind of have to do it after the like shitty, embarrassing loss that leads you to believe you're going to fire them 
or you just kind of have to wait it out and not fire them until the end of the season. It's super weird to like give him the opportunity. What if what if Nebraska wins one in the coming weeks against someone they shouldn't? And then if you want to fire Scott Frost, you've put them in a situation where like, okay, can you fire? What if they like? What if by some miracle, I don't know if they even play Ohio State, but like, what if by some miracle Scott Frost knocks off Ohio State? Can you still fire him? Like, if you oh, want, you if you want to get rid of him, you got to get rid of him now. And I feel like that's it. You either have to get rid of him, or you have to wait till the end of the season. I feel like. Yeah, I mean that's fair, but also seven and a half million dollars for three weeks, man. I mean, they should have fired him last year, but like, well, right? Yeah, you can't field a fucking competent special teams. They're like kick returning. What's that? Special teams. Their defense. Oh my god, they gave up. Well, no, 600... I mean last year oh, where oh, they yeah, lost right, right. half their games on fucking special teams. Their defense now is horrendous. They're playing blindfolded. Right. Out at there. least last year they were right in every game, and it was like, well, God, if they could just like fix these one or two little things, like they're right there. But this year they are fucking terrible. I mean, that defense is the worst in the Big Ten, and it's not close. They gave up 640 yards to Georgia Southern. 640 yards to Georgia Didn't Southern. did you say that, like, I don't know if everybody listening, I, I suspect you are, but just in case you aren't, right, there's like a stat called available yards. Right, so the idea It is... takes into consideration essentially your starting field position, right? So if you get the ball on the 35, there are 65 available yards between where you get the ball and the end zone. And so they measure what percentage of the available yards you are accumulating over the course of the game. Right. So if you started every drive at the 25-yard line and you had 10 drives over the course of the game, you would have a total of 750 available yards. Because every drive, if you'd gone for a touchdown the whole length of the field, you would have had 750 total yards. So if you gained you know, 375 total yards, you had 50% of your available yards. And we saw a tweet at halftime of the Michigan game that said, Michigan first half against Hawaii, 65% of available yards gained. Which is very high. Right. I mean, obviously, we kicked the shit out of Hawaii up and down the field. Yes. Nebraska against Georgia Southern, or I guess really I should take this the inverse way, Georgia Southern against Nebraska had gained 85% of available yards. And this was, in I think, early in the fourth quarter of that game. Unbelievable stat. It is mind-boggling how bad that defense got that fast that defense was good last year <laughs> yeah, too. yeah they were like that defense was actually good like i know they had some personnel losses i asked this question on twitter after the northwestern game because i was like okay like how bad is nebraska but nobody expected defense? him to fall off that far it's still but they man. also had a couple transfers come in including a defensive end uh, oshawn mathis who was all big 12 last year even so with the losses it was bad. like yeah, it should still be a pretty solid defense and my god they are awful speaking of awful <laughs> The Iowa offense. The Iowa offense. I'm here to talk about the Iowa offense, which has in its first two games combined fewer yards than Michigan had in the first half against Hawaii. They They had 150 (laughs) yards in the game against Iowa State and 166 yards in their opener for a grand total of 316 yards. 366, right? Three six. Am I doing? Uh, Or wait, no. Three three sixteen. I can do math. Get the fuck. Who said lawyers can't do math? I did. <laughs> well, Lawyers did, can't do math. You did it wrong, bro. But no, 316 total yards in two games. In two games. Right. Spencer Petrus has a QBR of like one. And uh, I mean, it's it's just unwatchable. And then Kirk Ferentz is getting up at the podium and saying, I don't know if we've seen enough from the rest of the offense, you know, giving him the help he needs to make a decision about what we're going to do at quarterback. And the Iowa fans on Twitter are like, this is his third year as the starter. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And Brian Ferentz is never getting fired. 
it's um, it's amazing i mean at some point if you're Gary Barda, don't you have to just fire Kirk Ferentz for refusing to fire his son? Gary Barda is never firing Kirk Ferentz. This is a Gene Smith situation. I hope he doesn't fire me. I hope he me. doesn't fire me. Correct. My God. We all know who runs that athletic department, and it's not really Gary Barda. I just, like, at some point, you have to think that the unwillingness to fire an absolutely trash offensive coordinator in and of itself becomes a fireable offense. Yeah, I mean, I, I do actually think that if Iowa goes, you know, four and eight and averages like 11 points a game or whatever it is they're going to end up doing this year, which is going to be really, really bad, that he might have to fire Brian Ferentz just because he knows that. Like, or they can give him the D'Antonio out. He can just retire, right? Kirk, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, right. Or they, they let, could like let that guy sail off into the sunset, wave goodbye to the right. children at the Iowa Children's Hospital, and get the <laughs> fuck out of here, bro. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's possible. Only if Gary Bard is ready to retire, though, too, because then Kirk France is becoming athletic director. That's definitely the, the trajectory here. This is the Barry Alvarez path to athletic director. Oh, no. But yeah, God, it's it's really funny. It's, <laughs> I mean, not for Iowa fans, but it's another situation where I feel bad for Iowa fans, but this is tremendous content. I don't feel bad for Iowa fans. Iowa fans should feel bad for subjecting the rest of us to this bullshit for so long. <laughs> it's not their fault. <laughs> they should have demanded that this guy be like burned at the stake after their like racist shit from two years ago. They should have just got rid of that guy. Oh yeah, like Iowa fans are going to demand that Listen, everybody gets fired I over being racist. This is the Steve King state <laughs> okay you make a really compelling point my point is you had the out we protested on dave brandon's lawn about about shane morris's concussion when no one gave a shit about shane morris's just concussion brady sucked. they wanted brady hoke fired and they wanted dave brandon gone too and this was very convenient pretext you Correct. should have used that very convenient <laughs> pretext to get rid of your awful fucking coaches I'm just saying, Should have, but work didn't, smarter, so. not harder, Iowa. It's true. Look, they're Midwestern. They only know how to work harder. <laughs> There's only one way. Okay, fine. Wisconsin but looks also, like shit, too. Yeah, I was going to say, don't let Iowa's like eye-gougingly hideous offense distract you from the fact that Wisconsin scored 14 points in a home loss to Washington State. Like, what the fuck is going on in Wisconsin? I really thought Wisconsin's offense was going to be... Big Ten West much... champion Purdue soon cometh. Oh my God, Purdue or Minnesota feels like got to have the inside track right now. I guess Purdue's a little bit disadvantaged by losing that opener to Penn State, which is kind of tough for them in the sense that they just played it's somebody It's not going to stop you than... from winning the West, though. <laughs> I mean, like, Well, it might. I mean, it's still a conference loss, so it doesn't help your cause. Not if the West looks the way it looks, because they're about to yeah, run no, through it, everyone right. else. No, it's, it's really rough. Um, I, I will say of that Wisconsin game, you know, looking at some of the, the numbers from it, Wisconsin outgained Wazoo by like 150 yards. And had a couple turnovers deep in Wazoo territory. So I'm not sure that that is as problematic for Wisconsin as I initially thought from seeing the final score. This was the game that was ongoing while we were out uh, getting to Ann Arbor and then getting stuck out in the rain and ended up, you know, dripping wet walking into the stadium. So we didn't get to see much of that one. But uh, anyway, it sounds like it was not as concerning maybe or a, a little bit fluky in the sense that Washington State won a, a game that Wisconsin kind of dominated but Wisconsin's offense still I mean Braylon Allen had sub 100 yards um, Graham Mertz remains Graham Mertz like it just doesn't really seem like they have taken any sort of meaningful step forward there they did kind of get there at about the midpoint of last season so maybe it's just going to take them a few games to figure it out but man I don't know it's still still Wisconsin Iowa looks fucking awful on offense 
And Nebraska's terrible. Northwestern lost to Duke. I mean, I don't know if there's a top 25 team in that division. Wisconsin's probably still borderline top 25, but it's Christ, bad. it's bad. I will say, do you remember when we drafted the Big Ten schedule and I drafted a bunch of Nebraska games because I thought <laughs> Nebraska was going to be entertaining? Yes. So I definitely lost that competition if it was even a competition at all. But more than that, actually, you want to know what? Nebraska might still be entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> It's like a like can't look how you away define entertaining, kind of entertaining. But we also were talking about when we did our Big Ten West preview, we talked about Illinois as the like not as bad as you think team. And they beat the crap out of Virginia over the weekend. And Virginia's like a real team. That's right. I mean, Virginia seems to have taken some major steps back with um, Bronco Mendenhall retiring. But yeah, Illinois looks really viable. I, they did lose to Indiana which is not great because Indiana is pretty bad. But That, that was, was kind also, of fluky, too. Right. That was a game that Illinois pretty well dominated and uh, I think had, like, a missed field goal, like a missed short field goal and a turnover deep in Indiana territory on downs. Like, they had opportunities to win that game and kind of blew it. Um, but, yeah, Illinois looks like an actually competent team. They're not going to be, you know, like 500 is probably about the ceiling for them. But, shit, in that division, that might put you middle of the pack. Yeah, also I would like to return to Iowa for a hot second because this also means that future Nebraska head coach Matt Campbell got his first victory in El Asico ever. And does Matt Campbell go to Lincoln? Like, if you're Matt Campbell, do you go to Lincoln? Lincoln's a dumpster fire, man. I am not taking the Nebraska job right now unless it's a real step up for me, and I don't think that is for Matt Campbell. Like, with what he's done at Iowa State, I feel like there's something better out there for him because... Like, Nebraska can compete for West titles. Like, there's no reason Nebraska can't be at the Wisconsin level or the level that Iowa's been at for most of the last 10, 15 years. But that program's not winning anything big anytime soon. And that's, it just seems like a tough job with, I also don't think the expectations are what people sometimes claim they are. Like, I don't think even Nebraska fans are under any illusions that Please, they're going to be they winning national be titles again. absolutely thrilled to have Bo Pelini's ass back <laughs> in that bitch. I think that's right. So I don't think the expectations are that unreasonable anymore. But also, like, if that's your upside is, like, regularly competing for the Big Ten West, but being, like, clearly a couple tiers down from ever actually winning anything of note, and that's kind of the ceiling, like, that's not that appealing to me. There's better jobs out there, and if I just keep doing what I'm doing at Iowa State, I can probably get one in a couple years. I saw years. some Nebraska fans claiming that he was going to come, like they've already reached out to Matt Campbell or whatever, right. like in the reporting. But more than that, they were like, keep in mind, Matt Campbell turned down the USC job. Yeah, that didn't happen. And I cannot begin to imagine the level of brain rot that must be required for you to think that USC called Matt Campbell... And then Matt Campbell turned them down, and then they called Lincoln Riley. <laughs> I like, do think he might have been on the like, list. Like, he might have been one of the people it. getting early calls, but there's no chance he turned that down, and then they went to Lincoln Riley. No! There's no chance he turned it down, and there's no chance he got the first pick out of Lincoln Riley. Stop it. <laughs> like, so, yeah, that, that didn't happen. Get out happen. of here. So, I don't know. I've heard Matt Campbell. I've heard Jamie Chadwell. That one's gotten brought up. Jamie Chadwell, to me, kind of feels like exactly what Scott Frost was about five years ago, which would be kind of interesting. Not to say that... It can't work. I mean, it, it could. Like, <laughs> it kind of seemed like it was headed there with Scott Frost before it completely That's imploded. Coastal Carolina head coach Jamie Chadwell for the uninitiated. That's He's, right. He runs coach of the, the Chanticleers. The Chanticleers, a.k.a. the pretentious roosters, as I refer to them. <laughs> They're fun. Their offense is fun. Their offense is fun. Um, yeah, that's pretty much what Scott Frost was a few years ago. A guy running like a creative kind of 
modern triple option offense at a, an upstart group of five school in the southeast didn't work out well but doesn't mean it couldn't so i don't know I, I think that's more realistic probably than matt campbell because that's obviously a much bigger step up from coastal carolina and the Sun Belt to nebraska in the big 10 yeah but we'll see looking around the big 10 east we should talk about our own division ever so briefly it wasn't that interesting ohio state wins big oh but on ohio state we got to talk about coming out of week one after the win over notre dame where notre dame's offense like did basically nothing for a large majority of the game we were all like in the entire second half basically right we were all like ohio state's defense kind of looks fixed and then notre dame went and played marshall and i believe they had geez 14 points until the last 10 seconds of that game, they got a tack on touchdown to lose 26-21. Anyway, Notre Dame's offense looks very, very bad. And I'm not sure we actually learned as much about Ohio State as we thought we did after week one. Yeah, I mean, this 0-2 Notre Dame team is not a top 10 team. It's not even close. It's not even a top 25 team as far as I'm concerned in light of the way that they have been playing. And so what did we learn about Ohio State? I'm not sure. We learned jack shit. Right. I mean, yeah, on Notre Dame, like that's three straight losses now for Marcus Freeman as head coach. I believe the people on Twitter are calling him just hot. That was Dan, (laughs) a.k.a. Thickstowskis, an icon, our favorite Twitter (laughs) follow by a mile. But I kind of think that's right. I mean, I said before the season that like this is the third time that Notre Dame has ever hired a coach without college head coaching experience and both of the first two were like catastrophic failures i'm not saying marcus freeman is going to be that but it looks pretty dicey right now they've got some serious work to do just to like i don't know where they're headed but if i'm jim harbaugh i'm adding every single one of their recruits i'm sending them all the video of jj mccarthy slinging the ball fucking everywhere and being like what are you doing out there huh oh if jim harbaugh hasn't sent five thousand texts in the last 48 hours he's doing something wrong because, because there's a top-ranked recruiting class out there that's got to be ripe for the taking watching yeah, this you Notre Dame offense just fuckers. poop itself all over the field. <laughs> yeah, they're so bad. Like, it was – we were fortunate that the folks we were tailgating next to had a TV that had this game on. Yeah, so we did get to see a little bit of this one, although it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty gross. It was. Speaking of gross, Texas A&M, welcome to the club. Oh, no. <laughs> you had to go there. <laughs> I mean – The club? There's a club. Christ. We're the founding member of the club. Yeah, yeah. Losing to App State as a top 10 team is uh, something I think we can vouch for is not enjoyable. The thing that's annoying about it, though, is that even though it's now happened to Texas A&M, too, it's always going to be the thing Michigan did. Like, I think Rich Eisen maybe put up a poll on Twitter and it was like, you know, is Michigan off the hook now? because oh, it happened to Texas A&M. That. And the answer is no. We'll never be off the hook for that. That's ours. We have to own that in, in perpetuity. The, the really annoying thing about that is that that App State team was actually like a good team. I think by some of the, this was like the pre-SP Plus era, but by some of the like Massey and some of these computer rankings that aggregate like all schools, not just FBS schools, App State was like a top 25 team. Like that was not actually as shocking of an upset as it seemed like it was for an FCS team against a, you know, preseason top 10 team that turned out to be not that good. And yet, you're right, we're going to be remembered for it forever. There's no, there's no escape. I mean, anyway, <laughs> A&M gets the benefit of the fact that App State is no longer an FCS team, right? right? 
But that game looked poopy, too. You called it early. You said when we gave our kind of general around-the-country takes, you in said... In the season preview episode. Yeah, you said that A&M was the team currently ranked in the top 10 or whatever that you thought was most likely to finish the season unranked. And so far, that take is aging like fine wine. Yeah, I mean, I said they're going to have a really good defense, which they do. And I have serious questions about their quarterback and their offense. And that has turned out to be very prophetic. I think people were just paying attention to the recruiting class they just bought and going, they're going to be good now. And yeah, it's this, like not this Kentucky like, basketball. They you can't need just a bring in, years. Yeah, yeah, you can't just bring in a bunch of five stars and be like, all right, we're cool now. Um, but yeah, they, they've got uh, some issues on offense. They ran, I saw this stat, they ran 38 plays in that game and had 18 minutes of time of possession to App State's 42. Like App State just did like the service academy thing where they gained like 3.8 yards per play and just ran play after play after play after play. And AM never had the ball. They scored 14 points in that game. <laughs> That's deeply funny. I like it. I mean, also when you can't get first downs and continue drives, then you also, you know, leave yourself in the position where you can't score points. So combination of those two things. But anyway, Don't schedule it, App State. It is very funny that Jimbo Fisher is making, you know, $15 million a year or whatever to... Uh, not quite that much, but, you know, slightly hyperbolic here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I heard it on the shutdown full cast. I can't remember if it was the full cast after dark or if it was just the, you know, regular old shutdown full cast that they put out every week. But they're paying him whatever ungodly amount of money they are paying him to have precisely one more win than Kevin no, Sumlin. No, one fewer win. He's one <laughs> win fewer than Kevin Sumlin after the same number of games. Gross. <laughs> That's money well Texas spent. Texas A&M just is what Texas A&M is. That There's is no money around. well spent. That's right. That oil money is going to good use. My God. You want to talk about the other Texas team of interest? Yeah. So we both picked Alabama as our preseason national champion because, of course, I mean, we it's did. It's hard not to. They're, Who the fuck I'm, else are you right. going to pick? I mean, Bama unless Ohio State's defense is I'm not picking Ohio bad. State. Right. I hate them, <laughs> and I will not pick them on principle. But even beside that, unless their defense had been vastly better, it would have been really hard to look at Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State and say, yeah, Ohio State's going to you know, take that, that step forward that would have been required to overtake Alabama and Georgia. So, yeah, I mean, it made sense that Alabama would have been the pick, and they sure did not look like it against Texas. No, I mean, I haven't seen Alabama look that shook in a really long time. I mean, Will Anderson was offside like five times. Like jumpy it was just a really and weird. Sloppy game for them. The offense looked incredibly bogged down. Like I was like, is it 2011 in this bitch? Like what the fuck is going on here? Well, to be fair, people were saying that it looked a lot like the Auburn game last year, which we did not get to see because we were in the car coming back from Michigan, Ohio State, and not particularly worried about the outcome of no, the Auburn. No, I didn't give a shit. And also, it was like a snowstorm. I was driving back in, like it was. I was going back to my parents' house from Ann Arbor. It's normally like an hour and fifteen minute drive, and it took like almost three hours to right. get home in that mess. So I was like following that game on GameCast on my phone and kind of seeing what was happening, but we didn't really get to, you know, actually see it. But it sounds like that game was a lot like this one in the sense that the offensive line was pretty bad. They couldn't really run the ball. They've got, they definitely do have some issues at receiver. They just don't have a, a Jamison Williams, a Devonta Smith. They don't have guys at that level right now. And so I think it's going to take a little bit of time for, um, for Bryce Young to get comfortable with some of those guys. Bryce Young, you can tell, is still a phenomenal player. Like, he pretty much pulled that game out of his ass with the drive at the end to, to win it for Bama. But they do have some offensive issues. I'm a little bit skeptical that it's um, 
actually going to be a problem as you get closer to the end of the year. I mean, shit, last year they lost to AM and then they looked like shit against Auburn. And then they torched Georgia, run over Cincinnati, and come within two minutes of beating Georgia again to win a national title, even with all the issues they had last year, which seemed like they're still cropping up again. So, like, they could very easily be there again in a few weeks where we're saying, like, oh, okay, Bama's Bama again. But... Yeah, they've got... <laughs> they've got uh, issues. I mean, their post-game win expectancy, according to Bill Connolly, was 63% almost, which is a little surprising to me because I felt like Texas really was getting the better of them for the majority of the game. Like, I felt like Texas got hosed a little bit. I Texas mean, did get hosed. They lose by one on that safety that's overturned, which was, like, deeply shitty because if, if the guy wasn't down, like, if... If he wasn't down, you should probably call ground. Right, he was there. clearly throwing the ball away but into the end zone. I, I get it; it was deflected, like it hit it hit another player's helmet, and so you can't, I guess, call grounding on like a tipped ball. But yeah, you can still call grounding. They should have called grounding there. I, whatever. I I thought it was a little fluky, and then Texas missed a field goal too, didn't they? Well, the other big thing is that I mean, with Quinn Ewers in the game, Texas looked like decisively the better team. Yeah. Like, Texas' offense was moving the ball better than Alabama's was. And then Ewers goes out with a shoulder injury, and Hudson Card already has the, the banged-up ankle and isn't the passer Ewers is. And Texas' offense just went dormant for pretty much the rest of the game. So, in that regard, it doesn't necessarily surprise me that Alabama ended up with, uh, what was it, 60-whatever percent win expectancy? 62.9, yeah. But also, I don't think it would have looked anything like that. I think Texas wins this game maybe going away with Ewers in, with the way they were hitting on some of the deep balls in the first half. Like... A couple more of those, and Texas has this game out of reach, and I don't think that last drive for Bama ever has a chance to happen. So I think, you know, given what I said about Bama and kind of the way that their season played out last year and that we know they're going to turn it on because they always do, I kind of wonder if we learned more about Texas, like especially if viewers hadn't uh, sprained his clavicle, which apparently is a thing that can happen. Yeah, I, I thought for exactly, sure he but... had a separated shoulder the way that he landed, and then... Yeah, so it sounds like he's going to be out for like a month, which is yeah, really Yeah, I thought I saw four to six weeks. Man, he, he looks like he's... <laughs> you can just kind of see that he was a recruit on the level of Vince Young and Trevor Lawrence. Like... Yeah, I'm glad he's not in Columbus. That's all I have <laughs> to say about that. Yeah, same, same. But, uh, man, I would have really liked to have seen Texas kind of round into whatever Texas is going to be this year with Ewers at quarterback, because... It looked pretty interesting. Um, now we're not going to get to see it for a while, but it does kind of look like Texas's defense has taken a huge step forward. That was a bad defense last year. Remember one that gave up 52 points to Kansas? Like, Oh, yeah, that was funny. That was very funny. And this looks like a totally different team. So I don't know. Maybe Texas is like kind of getting to Texas back territory. Texas um, back, baby. They might not end up with the record to indicate as much just because of Ewers being out and I don't know that Card is there as a passer to like actually Didn't you read me some conspiracy theory about that quarterback competition? Yeah, there were people on like some of the Texas message boards speculating that at first it came out that Card was going to be the starting quarterback coming out of camp and then the next day there was all these announcements from reporters that like oh it's going to be Quinn Ewers. Quinn Ewers is named the starter. And there was speculation that, like, Card had actually won the job, but then, like, people within the program were, like, pulling strings trying to make it so that Ewers was going to be the starter. Like, I have no idea if any of that is true, but I will say that Texas and Auburn are probably the only two programs where I would actually believe that that is possible, that (laughs) boosters or, like, people within the program are, you know, trying to uh, control the situation independently of the, the coach making actual decisions. 
But I will say Quinn Ewers looked very good, and Hudson Card looked pretty shaky, so it seems to have worked out for the best for them, injury notwithstanding. Yeah, I found myself rooting for Texas. Which was weird. Which was deeply weird. And then I saw that Ted Cruz was there. <laughs> and then I immediately was like, Actually, right. this is fine. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I don't care. I, Texas didn't get hosed. This is fine. I mean, we Texas did deserve on. a better fate in that game with the calls that you were talking about with Ewers injury. It just felt like that was a game Texas should have There was also a... They, um, I can't remember what the result of the sequence was, but there was a situation, perhaps Texas kicked a field goal, but when they should have had first and goal from like the seven, because there was a huge blatantly oh, missed face mask. yeah, there was an egregious mask. face mask Just where the guy got taken down on second mask. down, I think. Yeah. yeah and then with, they throw like an incompletion on third down and kick a field goal. And it's like, well, it should have been first and goal from the, the three instead of kicking a field goal from the seven. Like, and, and with the way the game played out, I mean the safety or the field goal, like any number of things was the difference in the game, basically. So totally, I kind of felt bad for Texas. And then, yeah, we saw the picture of Ted Cruz and it was like, okay, that's fine. Not that like, <laughs> Not that you know, much better. right. Like Senator Tommy Tuberville or whatever, <sighs> like he was better, but you know what I mean? Yeah. All right. I feel like we have to end there. I don't know that there's anything more that we can say. No, I think we pretty well covered things. We got uh, UConn next week. Going to see if JJ can keep it going and hopefully have another game with uh, you know a pass efficiency of 350 and you know 800 or so total yards. That would be great. We'll just keep it rolling until from your get, lips to God's ears. <laughs> until we get to the the real competition here in the next couple weeks. And with that, if you're still listening, thank you, and we will see you back next week.